for the week of November 27th, 2022. This is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 600, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the newsmaking headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. I'm not talking to you. Wait, what? Why? First, we missed three weeks. Then we missed last week. And now oh, we're going to miss next week. It's like you don't care anymore. What are our viewers oh, supposed to think? Our listeners. My God, we're there for them every week, year after year after year after year. For God's sake, Sperling, you're probably going to want Christmas and New Year's off too. And then I go to South Africa in January. I'm in South Africa from December 29th to January 13th. That could be a tricky two weeks uh, for sure. So that's something to think about in the future, though I will try and make it happen. But... Uh, we will not have a show next week. Where are you headed off to? What fancy resort? What fancy event are you attending this time? The Red Sea International Film Festival. Ooh, where's that being held at? That is being held in uh, Jeddah, which is in, of course, Saudi Arabia. Ah, very interesting, I should suppose. And, and what, will we, what will you be doing at the festival? Will you be attending? Uh, will you be on panels? What will you be doing? All of the above. Yeah? What kind of panel yeah. will you be on? Do you know yet? Is it a secret? Uh, can I let you know after? <laughs> after <laughs> sure, you can. Uh, that's uh, how was your Thanksgiving? Uh, good. How about yours? I've had three so far, and I'm looking forward to the fourth. Wait, we what? Have, we have a fancy sit-down dinner at my sister Trisha's on Monday. Uh, she always has hers in advance, a day or two or three earlier. This year it was on a wow, Monday. Okay. Twenty people at a sit-down dinner at a fancy table. Then my other sister has a Thanksgiving dinner. That one is the polar opposite. That's casual, standing around, buffet-style, appetizers and drinks everywhere. Uh, then I had a family with my mom, my brother, and I turkey dinner in a pot pie that my brother makes, which is really surprisingly good and I think should be marketed year after year. You just, he has layers of everything that you would get in a turkey dinner. Stuffing, corn, mashed potatoes, cranberry sauce, turkey, 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 gravy, and it's really good. You wouldn't think it would be, but it really, you're like, you have a bite and you're like, there's my turkey dinner. Very delicious. <laughs> we had that and all this time we kept getting leftovers from the other kids, from my mom and my brother, and that meant we never cooked our own turkey, the eight-pound breast that we have. So that will come in a week or two. You so know, uh, that's my I, one thing that I learned, I, I was with a family, it's like 40-some-odd family and friends, was uh, they were all watching football. And then the, the commercial for Avatar, The Way of Water, would come on. Uh-huh. And then you'd start hearing people talk about it. And mm. it like, ooh, was, that looks good or interesting or what'd they say? What's the buzz? Everybody under the age of 20 was like, eh, I never saw the first one. Not all that interested in seeing the second one. Everybody over the age of 50 was like, actually, I'm interested in seeing that. You know, like uh, the first one, some people said the story was good, but they, everybody agreed that the visuals were phenomenal and they really wanted to, to go and see it. In between, between 20 and like 45, it was mm -hmm. like half of like, eh, why are they doing this? So it, it was an interesting well, I reaction. guarantee all those young people, 20 and under, by the time they've seen 47 ads and people talk about it, biggest film of all time, and they hear about the tech, they'll be more interested and they will line up to see the movie. It's going to be a big hit film. There's yeah, no I doubt agree. about it. It's going to be, be a make film. a ton of money. They'll all go see it. Yeah, I, I'll I go agree. see it, even though the first movie was not good, but I'll go see it just to see the tech and because it's going to be, you know, one of the highest grossing movies of all time. That's I went to see Black Panther Wakanda forever, even though the original was not on my best of the year list. I went to see The Menu uh, over the holiday weekend. 
which is the Rafe Fiennes film where a high-scale restaurateur turns on his customers. I found it obvious and bad. I was going to clap really, really loudly. Uh, yeah, that's right. Just, ju- just, but then I thought, you know what? That doesn't really play well. On- <laughs> yeah, it, does, doesn't, it doesn't quite work, but that's, that's how he introduces each course. Yeah, I found the movie tiresomely obvious. All the, all the people that you're supposed to hate and be glad to see them getting their comeuppance are such boring stereotypes that it just wasn't interesting to me. Uh, I, okay. I, really, I was disappointed in it. I wasn't. I was expecting, eh, and it was not that. <laughs> did you <laughs> go out and have a cheeseburger afterwards? Uh, very good, very good. Yes, no, I did not. It was midnight. <laughs> so, And I still haven't <laughs> seen The Fablemans. I couldn't go see Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery, because it wasn't playing in Birmingham, Alabama. I would have paid money to see that movie in the week it was out, not like sprawling to show exhibition. I love them, but just because I was interested in seeing the film and seeing how many people were there and what the reaction was. So I would have gone and spent my $10 or $12 to see that movie, but I literally couldn't. They left a lot of money on the table, and that's one of the stories we're going to talk about, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are actually, you know, Michael, we, we kind of buried the lead here because you and I, we're still kind of smarting over not getting the top job at Disney. I mean, Ugh. when we heard, we've been saying, you know, Chapik is on thin ice for a while and we were putting our resume in, putting our resume in. I do not understand why they always bounce back to me, by the way. I don't get it. Uh, but uh, Michael and I would have made a great team. We even, by the way, offered to change our names to Bob, Bob one and Bob two. Or Walt. Really, sure. we'll take pretty much any name they want. But we'll take course, Disney Plus. We'll take Disney Plus. We don't even need the whole company. We could be Bob Plus. There yeah, you go. Bob, sure. Bob Three. Uh, but of course, in a genuine shocker, the head of Disney was fired and Bob Iger is back in charge. We'll discuss, you know, I don't know necessarily. It was all the discussion last week, but uh, well, maybe we'll have... Uh, yeah, something new and interesting to say about it. I uh, hope so, though. I, I have to say, I don't feel like I was claiming Bob uh, Chapek was on thin ice. They just renewed his contract. He'd had problems, but he'd moved beyond them, kind of, and they'd shown their tepid endorsement for him, but they finally got around to saying, oh, yes, no, he'd just been re-upped for another two years. Uh, it's only been a year, literally a, a less, 11 months since Bob Iger stepped down officially, finally. So he just left. So I have to admit, I was not expecting Bob Chapek. It was a shock to me. And I'm, you know, I'm flabbergasted for sure. I don't want to claim I saw that coming because I sure didn't. Well, something you did see uh, coming is social justice, which you track all the time. And this week, we've got stories from China, Korea, and Iran, among others, deciding what to cover and how it's not really easy when you're looking at cultures and legal systems that are radically different from the U.S. and Western countries. But, you know, we always give it a try. On Inside Baseball, we're in a holiday mood because Michael has switched the office soundtrack. That's right. He's switched it to nonstop Christmas music from now until New Year's Day, which, by the way, Outside is the reason I am actually home. working from home for the rest of the year. Um, so <laughs> in any case, uh, it's driving me nuts. And it's got us thinking about music. We'll discover the Ticketmaster, what we'll discuss and discover the Ticketmaster meltdown, the launch of a new b- music streaming service, another music streaming service, and mm-hmm. why the big stars just aren't as big as they used to be. That's because, you know, they're really far away and really what you're looking at is a star that's like probably millennia old. It probably died. But, but when it comes to Christmas music, Johnny Mathis is a star forever. 
Oh, okay. Uh, I don't know which one of those in the sky is Johnny Mathis, but you'll have to show it to me later. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Gilts to fill us in on last week's box office, minus, of course, any Knives Out films. Oh, Lordy, I just took a sip of tea and I took ice in it. So I'm chomping on ice while I try and get ready to say this. We are looking at box office around the world for the week ending November 27th. We cover the whole week's box office. If you heard all the reports about Black Panther, it made uh, $68 million. It made $130 million around the world last week. It's at $675 million worldwide chugging along with a clear path until Avatar 2 comes out. I should say Avatar, the way of water. Until that comes out in early mid-December, like December 11th, this puppy's got nothing in its way. So it's got another two weeks to chug in a lot of money. That is the number one movie around the world. At number two, way back, is Strange World from Disney, a very disappointing $28 million opening, raising lots of discussion about how do you figure out which things should go to streaming and which should go to theatrical. Well, we say it's easy. If it's a really hot, big property that people are excited about, like Knives Out, you put it theatrical. If it's got a big budget, anything over $100 million, why wouldn't you put it out theatrical if you're spending that much money? The chance to get it back in theatrical seems a no-brainer to me. So, no, I wouldn't look at a $160 million budget for Strange World and think straight to streaming. That would be bizarre. If it's a modestly budgeted movie and you don't think it's going to work theatrical and you, or just you're happy to have fresh content on your service that hasn't played that way, okay. But anything with a big budget, go theatrical. What do you got to lose? If it's bad, they're going to know it's bad anyway. <laughs> You know, you were saying that there were all these uh, commercial, you know, the commercials for Avatar are pretty much everywhere, right? And they're, right. you know, they're pretty, and everybody's going to see them. When I mentioned that Strange World was out over Thanksgiving, people were, looked at me and said, hey, what's that? Strange World? Is that like a new movie? Well, they, they did advertise no it, but, and also the theatrical release, even the bad reporting. Trust me, people just see, oh, a Disney movie. And they see a review and it's a bad review. It just tells them, oh, the menu opened up. <laughs> you know, they really, that's what you're doing. You just let him know this thing exists. And so all that coverage of Strange World, all those reviews, which were mixed and not awful, um, all the attention, that's just really letting people know the movie's out there. So when it comes to Disney Plus a month from now, they'll say, oh, yeah, let's check it out. Yeah, that, that's how that works. So I wouldn't worry about it for them in terms of, oh, oh, now they'll know it's not good. Yeah, so if you release it fresh on your streamer, they're going to either not find it at all, or when they do, they'll say, that's not good. You know, you can't hide a bad movie. And it's not going to play better just because it only went straight to streaming. It's not like straight to DVD where your expectations are lowered. Well, number one movie around the world is Black Panther Wakanda Forever with $130 million. Strange World from Disney, mixed reviews, but their first kind of intentionally major openly gay character, a teenage boy. So that's very cool to see. Uh, they're going to keep moving on. They didn't release it in about 8 or 10 or 15 countries, but all told, they weren't going to make much money in those countries anyway because China is in lockdown. And number three around the world is The Menu, the Ray Fiennes film I was just dissing. Sorry about that. It made $18 million around the world. It's at $33 million and counting. It costs $30 million to make, which makes me think, why? I'm not sure why it costs $30 million. And number four is one of the big movies of the year. This is what we're pulling from trade industry speculation. It's Glass Onion, Knives Out 2. Since they spent over $400 million to get the next two movies, we're going to say the budget for this film is $200 million. 
Nonetheless, we know in North America, it probably goes around $15 million. That's because it was only on 600 screens. It did by far per theater, better than any other movie that's out there right now. In the UK, it made another one and a half million dollars, which is good money because it was only on like a hundred screens in the UK. Who knows what it made in the rest of Europe? And everybody agrees that a sequel to a very popular film, given a proper release like the, an advertising push like they did, there's no reason it wouldn't have matched, at the very least, the 40 or $50 million that Knives Out made when it came out on Thanksgiving weekend a few years ago. So... It's bizarre that they only wanted to release it for one week and wouldn't let it play out for a month. It's even more bizarre they spent all the money to advertise it and sell it and then refuse to release it in more theaters, which couldn't have cost that much more, right, Sperling? I know it's digital print, but in this day and age, going from 600 to 3,000, is that a heavy lift? Well, you're th- uh, the way I like to look at it is think about $200 per screen. So, But when you're spending that much money, no, I think they just didn't want it to be that accessible. But and- it's bizarre, it's bizarre. Like, yeah, why wouldn't just, you want $50 million? And we all believe that if it had played theatrically, it probably, like, maybe many sequels, it would have made two-thirds of what the original made, though there's no reason to think it wouldn't have been just as popular. So that's just money left on the table. I don't get it. Especially when you're spending $200 million for a movie. I can't see any downside to releasing it theatrically. All I know is... I'm eager to see it. I would have paid to see it in the theater and I would have watched it again on Netflix or I would have been happy not to watch it on Netflix and I would have known I paid for that movie and it's on Netflix and, you know, there it is. And I'm happy because I saw it and I liked it. I won't be angry that I paid to see it in a theater and I won't feel cheated and I won't think, well, gee, why bother paying for Netflix? They created something I was happy to see and I happened to pay extra to see it in a theater. It's a win-win for them. So that's certainly one of the more interesting films of the year in terms of why it was released and how. But they absolutely left money on the table. It made maybe $18 million worldwide. We're really just guessing. Black Adam, that made another $12 million worldwide. That's at $375 million and counting. It's a $200 million budget, so this is another movie that's not going to come even close to tripling its uh, estimated budget once all is said and done. It looks like it's mostly played out. It's going to wind up around $400, $420, $30 million, something like that, maybe. So that's not a win, but it's not a disaster. Devotion, however, did not do that well. This is a Korean War film. It's an inspirational story about two flyers, one black, one white, who bond together during the Korean War. Had a big budget of $90 million. It's a period film. It's a war film with a big widescreen epic look, but it only made about $9 million at the theaters. I wonder if it's been released in Korea. I don't think so, but boy, that box office is so moribund right now, it may not have made any difference. Another notable Entry in our chart is The Chosen, Season 3, Episodes 1 and 2. This is the first two episodes of the new season of The Chosen, a streaming series about Jesus Christ, and it's been a big, relatively big, success in streaming from an indie server and indie people putting this out. Seasons one and two have been uh, very popular. And last week it came out, season three, you could pay to go see it in the theaters. Last week it grossed about $8 million dollars which was a ton of money for the type of product it was. This week it made another $6 million. So it's at $14 million and counting for basically people paying to see something they probably are going to pay again to watch in their homes. So just like Netflix, these people are happily paying extra for the eventization of going to see this in the theaters. Just like some people saw episodes of Game of Thrones in a movie theater. Just like I might have gone to see 
you know, uh, the Lord of the Rings. I might have done that. Well, yeah. Oh, well, Lord Yellowstone yeah. people, people went to see Yellowstone in the movie theater. My brother said, why the hell would I pay to see Yellowstone? I can see it on my TV. So that exists, but there's no loss to doing it. You know, the Quorum and the National Association of Theater Owners released a study and it listed the top 10 things that, you know, non-theatrical content that uh, people want to see in TV in shows. Theaters. Yeah. Number three was like cooking shows. That was the weird thing. Cooking well, shows. Yeah, number one was, I think, believe, television shows. Well, I, I would question that poll. <laughs> Cooking shows, that seems a little bizarre. Um, back to the charts, Ticket to Paradise is chugging along. That's the romantic comedy with Julia Roberts and George Clooney. In South Korea, they had a new film called The Owl, which I could find almost nothing about. But it made $5 million, which in this context is uh, pretty good. Uh, and in the UK, Matilda the Musical opened to number one at the box office, 50% bigger than Wakanda Forever. It made $5 million in the UK and Ireland. This is another Netflix film. When the rights were made for this musical, they were not, that Sony and whoever else held the rights held back the UK and Ireland and said they wanted to do a theatrical release. So this will be going to Netflix uh, in like a month, you know, right around Christmas Day. I think, is there a theatrical release planned in North America as well for early December? I think there might be, but I'm not sure about that now. But in any case, like Knives Out, this is something that's going to be on Netflix in a month. And right now it's released theatrically pretty wide in the UK. It's the number one film. It made $5 million. It looks set to have a nice good run until it hits the streaming service. So it's got four weeks to go. And in the UK, this is the biggest movie in the country. That's money in the bank. And it's just telling everybody this exists. Because believe me, a lot more people see stuff in the home than usually go see it in a movie theater. You know? Plus, I mean, how many times did you say, you know what? I saw Knives Out in the movie theater. I'm going to cancel my Netflix subscription. Right. It's, or, or they put it in a movie theater, so I want to cancel my Netflix subscription. More likely, you say, oh, yeah, I look forward to seeing that when it comes out. Maybe there's somebody who's annoyed they can't watch it right away. But you know what? Four weeks is so soon. Even nine, even 12 weeks, you know, 90 days is nothing. Uh, it, all it does is like a teaser trailer, letting you know it exists. Bones and All is a teaser trailer. If they like watching cookie shows in movie theaters, I'm sure they love watching Bones and All, the story of a young cannibal romance. That Timothy Chalamet film made about $4 million this week. It's at $6 million and counting. Spielberg did not have a great week. He's on 600 screens, just like Glass Onion. His semi-autobiographical coming-of-age tale, The Fablemans, made about $3 million when it went wide. Mm. She Said was also another movie that's not doing well. It opened uh, last week, and it's now at $6 million total. It just didn't click in any way, shape, or form. And scrolling down, Smile is still making money. The Banshees of Inner Sheeran. I really liked that movie, I have to say. Yeah, yeah, I liked it a lot. I thought it was a return to form for Mark McDonough. I was not as big a fan of Three Billboards, though. It was an Oscar winner. Uh, but there you go. We have two weeks of box office you can check out. Glass Onion and Matilda the Musical and The Chosen, that TV show with new episodes airing in movie theaters. I think those are the really, really interesting stories coming out of the box office this week. And then you look at Korea, it's pretty low there. And China, the total box office this week was $8 million. So in one context, the, fact, the news that Disney's Avatar 2 will be released in China the same day as it's playing everywhere else in the world, that's great news. But it really won't make a difference at the box office. They're, they're just not going to be open. There's no way it's going to make any significant money in China unless something radically changes. 
Well, yeah. Well, what what if actually? Because of course, right now we're hearing reports of riots. Uh, you know, the I guess people Pro, are tired of being protests. Locked let's say protests, protests, not riots. Correct. Riots is out of control and lawless. Protests against a government that you're unhappy with and have no way to speak out. It's it's people are protesting like they haven't in many many ages in China. There was a massive protest at a factory making iPhones. Now people are very angry and upset about the government lockdown because they believe it stopped security people from rushing to a fire and saving more lives as they should have. And there's just widespread discontent as far as we can tell. So obviously our thoughts are with the people of China, great country, great people. And it's uh, we hope they get what they want. Well, and uh, you know, what if uh, releasing avatar and getting people back into movie theaters, what if that actually quelled everything and everybody was happy? You'd say James Cameron, not only good, you know, great storyteller. Uh, well, Come on. I think uh, he'd be on the side of the people protesting. So <laughs> he would not want his movie to be seen as a soporific to quell people rightfully protesting conditions they object to. But, you know, the people of China will hopefully get what they want. And Disney, did they get what they want? It sure seems like it, right? Bob Iger is back in charge. Over the past year, the Disney stock had dropped more than 40%. This is the year 41% that Bob, to be exact. Well, there you go. More than 40%. And this has been the year when Bob Iger finally, literally, really stepped down. It was December of 2021 where he finally stepped away completely and stopped casting a shadow over his successor, Bob Chapek, who perhaps understandably chafed with having Bob Iger looking over his shoulder and releasing statements like, I'm going to help him out, or saying stuff like, well, I'm not happy with Florida. <laughs> He's like, could you just let me alone? But he had lots of problems, right? Firing of Peter Rice, to me, I said, that's people do that all the time. You got a potential successor breathing down your neck, get rid of him. He had a debacle with Scarlett Johansson, the fight in Florida with uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, who was spoiling for a fight. Lots of problems for Bob Chapek, though the parks are at record profits, but they've done it by raising prices, alienating hardcore fans, and making going to the park out of reach for a lot of middle-class families. So maybe they're winning the short-term battle and losing the war. It's, it's been a long struggle. Are you excited by Bob Iger? Do you think he's just going to be choosing a successor or do you think he's going to really knuckle down and say, you know what? I don't want to stop doing this job. I think that he will have to be there for at least three years. I mean, to say he says two years, our prediction is he will be there for at least three years, right? If not four, there ain't no way he's yeah. walking away two years from now, right? How could he possibly do that? I mean, it just makes uh, it makes very little sense. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't get much done in that that time frame. But he really does. This time, he really needs to find a successor. He can't be chasing them off like well, he, he, did, he did. Yeah, he did. And he Thomas bring, Staggs. He, he could bring back Peter Rice. There is some thought thought to that, but if he does that, the the thinking is, and this is from talking to people inside Disney, that if he brings back Peter Rice, which would be something that people would appreciate, at least inside Disney, is that they would have to say, look, he is the successor. Right. We're bringing well, him that, back to be yeah, a successor. Exactly. And that would be, a, you know, he said, but not right away. <laughs> anyway, right. I feel so sorry for Bob Chapek. He gets a $23 million compensation package plus his pension. So, you know, he just had re-upped his thing. So he'll be okay, I think. I think he'll be all right. Bob Iger, of course, gets 20, oh no, not 27 million. He's taking a $1 million salary. What a regular Joe. Just a million dollars a year. Of course, his total compensation package each year will come to about $27 million, depending on this, that, and the other thing. But yeah, 
when you say my salary is just a million, a a million dollars is an insane amount of money. So don't act like you're being some savior by only taking a million dollar. That's called a lottery prize. (laughs) So anyway, he's already had his first town hall this morning. We're recording on a Monday. And he said the firing freeze is in place. And uh, no, there's no talk about us merging with Apple. You know, that's just sheer speculation, sheer speculation. But what the do you number think of-, of phone calls I got about that last week? Oh, Apple's going to buy Apple's going to buy. I'm like, no, the rap reported it. And it's like, congratulations. It worked. You know, everybody's <laughs> talking about it. But no, it's, you know, Apple has so much going on with the government right now in terms of antitrust. Now, I know they're always being looked at for antitrust, but now with the, you know, they're really kind of under the what's Justice the, Department's what's, thumb. What, what are they? What are they looking at them for? Specifically, Over the uh, the uh, App Store stuff. That, oh, that, that yes, yes, on. yes. But that's yeah. a yeah, that's a that's a part of their business for sure. But yes, um, there's a couple things here though. Bob Iger is back in charge while he was away. By the way, he said traditional TV is dead. Traditional TV and cable are walking off a cliff. The theatrical business will never return to the heights of 2019. So he has dissed television, cable, and theatrical, which are cornerstones of Disney's profitability. ABC, ESPN, the movie theater, where they had 40% of the box office in 2019, where they've got Wakanda Forever, the number one movie in the country, and they've got Avatar, The Way of Water, coming out in a few weeks. So my, my this, question for him would be, do you think that maybe, you know, people, theme parks aren't coming back? Do you think, would you say that about theme parks? If well, why, not, why would you say about all the other stuff? <laughs> yeah. I, I think he was actually out there. I think he was stirring up trouble and he mm-hmm. did. Congratulations. He got what he wanted. He's back to being the CEO. Uh, you know, he didn't have to retire. Nobody asked him to retire. They wanted him to stay on. I think I, well... I think that uh, theatrical can and should return to the heights of 2019. And we've got other reasons to have hope for that in terms of new players creating content that will be released theatrically. I think TV is obviously a diminishing business, but I don't see TV and cable and Disney Plus as somehow these three different things. They're just three different ways of getting content in front of your viewers. It doesn't matter in certain ways where they watch it, but it matters in other ways because of how you make your money. But whether it's on demand on your DVR or via Hulu next day or on Disney Plus or you watch ABC Live or you're watching ESPN on your phone on an app because you're away from home, you know, these are these all work in concert. It's not a zero-sum game. Traditional TV is still got a big role to play. Cable has a big role to play. And it's all changing how people consume stuff. But it's not like TV's gone. Theatrical's gone. It's like they all matter. You know, they're all ways of reaching people to watch the stuff you create. And so... It doesn't matter to us whether you have over-the-air rabbit ears or you're paying for cable or, like me, you've got YouTube TV and you're paying $60 a month to stream stuff to your television and your laptop and stuff. That doesn't matter. And by the way, speaking of rabbit ears, 11% of homes in America are using rabbit ears to get television. You can get a lot more channels digitally now, thanks, via rabbit ears than you could in the old days. And the picture's really quite good. So unless you're in a big city... Rabbit ears are a really good way to supplement whatever you want to buy online, if anything at all. Uh, I was surprised. I thought, well, a million people, how many people can... 11% of all homes in the U.S. use rabbit ears to get over-the-air television for free. And is that a problem? No. You know? And who cares how they get it? They're watching ads. 
They don't have a DVR, but they're watching ads and they're watching television and, you know, it's all to the good. So I thought he was wrong about theatrical. I think pushing TV and cable versus streaming is a mistake because it's not how you should see it. You know, you can catch people every step of the way. They can watch Knives Out in the movie theater and they can watch it again six months later when it's on streaming because they're in the mood. You know, what's the problem? Wait, you mean people watch movies again? Don't tell that to my kids who do it all the time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, you know, Disney's a complicated business. My only question is we had Bob 1.0 and then we had Bob Chapek 2.0. Now that he's come back, is he Bob 3.0 or is he Bob 1.0 again? I think he's 1.5. I like Bob 1. Plus. Bob Plus was good. We would totally be Bob Plus if we could. Yeah. Uh, he's a smart guy, but he built up a lot of debt, too. There's the other way of looking at his era. He did a great job. Nobody would say you made a mistake buying Lucasfilm or Marvel uh, or Pixar. Not a single no. person on the planet would say those were bad moves. But Disney is solid with a lot of debt. He had the fun of buying all those businesses and seeing them clicking and making them work as part of the Disney empire. But now he's going to have to deal a little bit more with the debt. So that's not the fun stuff, is it? No, and of course, he, he has a couple of other things that were talked about uh, incessantly over the past week, which is he's got these activist investors who are saying, spin off ESPN, so, uh, you yeah, know, sell, you know, sell ABC, to which I'm saying, you know what, I, the way I look at ESPN now is it is Rolling Stone at the beginning of streaming. Rolling Stone was music. It could have owned streaming if it had you know, decided to be a little bit more progressive and take a bold step and say, you know what, we're going to try and get into streaming music. But they, of course, were like, no, 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 we're not, we're not doing it. They had a brand that could have worked. You mean to uh, launch music. a streaming service? Yes, but they, of course, didn't do that. Were they thinking of it? The magazine, you mean? No, 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 not at all. No, as a media company, they didn't think about that at all. Uh, ESPN, well, I, I thought Premier Magazine should have been the home of trailers. I thought their website should have, you know, when I worked at Premiere, exactly. which is long forgotten, I thought that should be the place that they premiere trailers and make them, you know, before you could see them anywhere all the time online. I thought, you know, that should be just, hey, you want to see a new trailer? We get exclusives all the time. And that's the place you go to see new trailers. I thought it would have been a great way to drive traffic until they became ubiquitous. But, um, oh, well. Yeah, but it's, it's easy to say that in hindsight. Were you saying at the time that I'm not sure Rolling Stone would have been in a place or capable of launching a, a streaming? I don't really think of them as a multimedia company. They, you know, they have podcasts and stuff, but basically they seem to me still a website and a print magazine. Oh, this I'm was not, back in the two, early 2000s when, you know, they, they, you know, MP3s were just coming on and they could have been, no, they I could understand. have been the MP3 blogs. Instead, okay. they let MP3 blogs eat their lunch. And I guess my comparison to me would be Blockbuster. I thought they should have been there for streaming. There was no reason. Perfect they example. Sh they should have been there bigger for DVDs and Blu-ray. They weren't at first. You should have been able to walk in any store and see DVD and Blu-rays there. They weren't there for rental as strongly as they could have been. They, you know, they should have been able to crush Netflix. And they had the name brand and the ability, and they should have been there streaming, but they didn't do it. So, yeah, I can see that. But it ain't easy running a big company. We love second-guessing Bob, and hopefully we'll be doing it, and we bet, for years to come. And it's not easy running a big company all over the world, and it's not easy covering stories from all over the world, especially when it comes to social justice. We do it in our fumbling way. We have three countries here we're talking about today, China, Korea, and Iran. One story that's good? 
One story that's interesting and one story that's great. In China, it looks like justice was done, perhaps. Music and TV star Chris Wu, who also has Canadian citizenship, was sentenced to 13 years in prison for rape and sexual misconduct, as well as being fined $80 million for tax evasion. You feel like they just pile on, like they let these celebrities get away with whatever. But if they turn on them, they're like, what else we got? Oh, yeah, he's not paying taxes. You, know? you feel like they didn't care until they wanted to make an example. So he's faced multiple charges though at one point they all seem to stem from one accuser. I assume that's changed and other people have spoken on the record. Uh, it's really hard to say, aha, yay, great, this bad person did this bad thing and is paying a price. That's what it feels like. There's no other reason China would have done this necessarily. There's nothing else we know about Chris Wu, who's one of the biggest stars well, in China, that would make them want to say, oh, we got to make, he's a bad, you know, he's turned against the government or spoken out or something. So we don't know any other reason why they would do this. So we assume it's done in good faith. But when you're looking at the legal system of China, you just can't trust that much what's going on. So it looks like something good happened there, but, you know. You kind of uh, said it yourself. He's one of the biggest stars in China. If you're a government that where you want to convey to the people, look, no matter how big you are, we can always come and get you. Well, yeah, but that would seem more like the 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 actress who they went after for tax evasion. That seemed to be punishing her for reasons unrelated to what they were getting her at. In this case. We don't know that they're doing anything, but it's not like they're suddenly making a big deal about sexual misconduct or rape, you know, <laughs> otherwise they'd go after a government official or somebody that there was cover up for. So yeah, we just assume this happened because he got caught and the system fumblingly worked, even though it's not really designed to have a fair and just legal system. So you can't really trust what happens in the Chinese legal system, but maybe in this case, justice was done. In Korea, it's more complicated. The co-star of Squid Game, uh, Oh Young-soo, He's an older man. He was the oldest person competing in Squid Game, if you watch that show. The 70-year-old star was indicted on sexual misconduct. Korea, of course, has a solid legal system, and we're glad to see that the, the system is working, and we'll see what happens when the case goes to the court. The star himself says, well, he held the hand of a woman while guiding her around a lake. Uh-huh. I doubt he was indicted because he held the hand of a woman while he was guiding her around the lake. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. So I don't it know what's going on there. All the time. Yeah, 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 exactly. But we do have great news, but scary news in Iran. A number of top actresses in that country have taken part in the protests that are roiling Iran like like we haven't seen since the Green Revolution. Uh, they have been r arrested after removing their headscarves in public or online. They've been protesting against the government. We've seen other actors and actresses not being allowed to leave the country to attend film festivals. So uh, our hearts go out to the people of Iran. And, you know, we hope they get what they want and the justice they deserve. So it's very scary to see, you know, 14, 15-year-old girls being arrested which is what you're seeing in Iran. You're seeing kids being arrested and sometimes beaten and killed. And, you know, you know that they're on the side of the angels, and, but you're so worried about them because you don't you know what they're risking and how their lives are going to be altered forever by what they're doing. But you can't help, you know, cheering them on, but knowing what a heavy and dangerous uh, price they're going to pay. So it's a very scary time. But, you know, 15,000 people are reportedly arrested in Iran over these protests. Where do they that, put them all? There aren't that have... many jails, exactly. Yeah. You can't arrest everybody. That's why ultimately the power is always with the people. But that's easy to say when you're not risking your own life or your career and your future or the, that of your family and friends by speaking out. So very scary. But social justice ain't easy to cover or talk about. But 
it's really roiling the entertainment business. Music and TV stars in China, uh, Squid Game stars in Korea, and top actors in Iran. So, uh, you know, our thoughts are with all the people on the side of the angels. Well, and and that uh, where where do you want to go from from here, Michael? I know. Well, you, well we were talking about streaming. Talk- I've got a link in our show notes. We don't have the new week's uh, info yet. We've got uh, every week we break down the charts and we show how much they've risen or fallen from the week earlier. Uh, Not a lot of people seem to be doing this. There are no running totals for how many minutes these shows are being watched. And it's only a sliver of the total watching that's being done. I don't know why in the U.S. we can only get numbers from Nielsen for watching on smart TVs in the North America. In the UK, they have a top 50 chart every week, and it comes out two weeks after the shows are on the air, and it includes viewing on every platform, on TVs, on phones, on laptops, and on tablets. So it's a great list. Obviously, it doesn't include total DVR watching because that takes more time. You know, they're getting this info out two weeks later. I don't know how long they've got a month or year to watch the stuff on their DVR, but they're getting good information. And when you look at their chart, we link to it in our show notes, this week, reality is all over the UK charts. The top 10 is entirely reality television, which is not a surprise because they've stripped the series, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, where they drop celebrities <laughs> in the jungle and let them try and get along and survive. It's hilarious. That show was on every night two weeks ago, and that's the entire top seven. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. 10 to 11 million people watch that every single night while it was, was stripping uh, last week. So, you know, reality is all over the place. And then Strictly Come Dancing was right below it. So reality, reality, baby. It's, that's all you can see in the UK. You have to go to number 11 to find a show that is not, that is a fiction, a comma or dramedy. In that case, it's uh, SAS Rogue Galleries, which is a World War II drama, star, no, Rogue Heroes, starring the very talented Jack O'Connell. Uh, he was in the film 71, which I really liked a lot. But uh, UK charts, all about reality. Why? It's cheap to make, right? Yeah. Just ask David Zasloff. <laughs> exactly. Uh, he'd say, you know what? Uh, fiction's no big deal. You can make more money off reality. Wait, he would say that? Well, then He would indeed. We should, we, we should invite him on and, you know, he can play big deal or big whoop with us because... You know, that is our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell people whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story, because because the first one is for you, Sperling. It's about exhibition. That's right. The same week Netflix was packing them in at cinemas with the new Knives Out mystery and Matilda the Musical in the UK, fellow streamer Amazon made some noise. Bloomberg reports, nobody else has confirmed this yet, but Bloomberg is reporting that the company is committed to spending $1 billion a year on 8 to 10 theatrical movies. They're going to ramp up with just a few, and then they're going to get up to speed. That's in an attempt to make the most out of its purchase of MGM. You know, you make a new Pink Panther movie, you don't want to put it on streaming. You want to put it on the big screen and make money. Obviously, uh... MGM has some great movies ripe for rebooting and the like, but Amazon already has some big movies to its credit, like the Oscar-winning Manchester by the Sea. It also has the Timothy Chalamet flick Bones and All in theaters, even as we speak. And of course, it spent a gazillion dollars producing fantasy franchise series like The Lord of the Rings and The Wheel of Time. So they know how to make big movies, because the challenge is the same when you make a big movie and a big TV series, and they know how to, well, not release them in theaters, but farm them out to people who will do that for them. So is this a big deal, a big whoop, or does it depend on who they hire to be a distributor for them? I think uh, all of the above. 
it is a big whoop because they haven't confirmed it. They made a mm. point of not confirming it. Okay. It's also a big whoop because they just spent, you know, you said it, $8.5 billion buying MGM. So, of course, they, they now own a studio. What did you think they were going to do? I thought they would use the library. I thought they would use the library for their streaming service. I did not necessarily think they would be become big theatrical players. Well, and they're spending a billion dollars to create theatrical movies. What I would say is ask Warner Brothers, ask Paramount, ask, ask Disney how much they're spending. And you know what? You might get the number $2 billion, $3 billion. And how much Maybe, they're making. Yeah, and that's actually true too. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, okay, so they bought a studio and they're going to release theatrical movies kind of like a studio. No, it's good news that they plan on doing this. And I would say bravo for them because you know what? If you're going to make a movie and you're going to put it on your streaming service where it will live, you know, in ad infinitum. Great way what? to market it is to put it in theaters and by the way, make a lot of money. And, and you know what? You put it in theaters Keep it there 45 days, keep it there 30 days, keep it there 50 days if it's doing well, keep it there 90 days if it's doing well. Take that money, put it in the bank, and then guess what? If people want to see it after that, guess where they have to go? They have to come knock on your door again. Exactly, yeah. So exhibition stock, the stock of companies like AMC and Regal and Cinemark, they rose on this report of what might be happening at Amazon. My question to you is whether we'll know they're really serious if they put in the infrastructure to do distribution all the time rather than farming it out to other companies. I do you wonder, were, like, you were saying that they really need to have people there to do it all the time if you're going to do it regularly. Yeah, and right now, I mean, they started doing that, but then it was kind of haphazard. It's, it, you know, they used to do it through like roadside attractions or Lionsgate. And, right, and so if they do it themselves so- or buy a company and do it, would that be a real sign that they're really committed to theatrical or do you not need to see that? Uh, you know what? I, I don't necessarily need to see that, but if they do that, I mean, that's a $15, 30000000 million uh, commitment just in overhead each year. So um, I know a that- A billion dollars. I know. If you're going to spend $150 million to make a movie and you got 10 of them, is that really a big commitment to have $30 million so you can release them and make the most money out of them and, and, you know, have that machine in place? Well, I I think uh, certainly if you see that it's headed in the right direction, uh, I think that's probably where they are headed and probably should be headed. I say if they don't do that, that they're not that serious and they're making a big mistake. If you're going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars making movies, not to spend 15 to $30 million to be in control and do it right and have that smooth system working all the time for all your things from the pipeline, from theaters to TV to stream, you know, then I think you're making a big mistake. They did just announce a new deal. It's a four-picture deal with Tyler Perry. His last three films came out on Netflix. Whether Amazon just outbid Netflix or he wasn't happy with Netflix or he just saw more money, whatever, I don't know. But he has signed a four-picture deal with Amazon. Not a hint in the stories about theatrical. Not mentioned. Not even like we asked and nobody would talk. Like, you make a new Medea film? Do you want it in theaters? I don't see why not, at least in North America. So that was interesting. But yeah, they're making a big deal with Tyler Perry. Um, But I say, you know, this is big deal because that's like having a new studio. If they truly commit to oh, making yeah. 10 movies a year with serious, big, good-sized budgets, medium and big budgets and small budgets, that makes up for a lot. And if Netflix commits to having some, you know, suddenly you got Amazon and Apple, maybe Apple says, why are we not putting these in theaters and making a lot of money? Because there's no downside. <laughs> there's no downside to that. Uh, and all our directors really want it. So, you know, I think 
This could really make a big difference in terms of the return of the box office and getting people back into the movie theaters. They're making the types of films like Will Smith's Emancipation, not to talk about Will Smith and whether you want to see his movie, but that historical epic that's an Oscar bait, that's the type of movies that can get a wider audience back to theaters that's not necessarily heading out to watch Wakanda Forever. Maybe they're heading out to watch Agatha Christie. Ooh. In fact, Net- Netflix is making hay with uh, the Agatha Christie style movie franchise Knives Out. So maybe it's not a surprise that someone finally decided to bring Agatha Christie's play, The Mousetrap, to Broadway. After 70 years and counting in the West End, the long-running whodunit will open on Broadway for the first time in 2023. It will not be reimagined or toyed with in any way. The set design will be scrupulously the same. The cast will be, well, let's face it, I mean, unimportant. And the main draw is Agatha Christie herself, although I just heard she's not coming to the opening. Okay, (laughs) Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Oh, well, I'm always rooting for everything on Broadway in a way, but uh, to me, it's a big whoop. I can't imagine why they decided to do it other than Knives Out or something and the and the revival of uh, Agatha Christie movies with Hercule Poirot and Kenneth Branagh, but I saw it in London. It's something you just do. You're in London. Eventually, you decide you're going to go see The Mousetrap because it's been playing forever. It has that sort of, you know, oh, well, you got to go because it's always been playing there. So, But it was creaky when I saw it 30 years ago. It's creaky now. I can't imagine it succeeding on Broadway. It played off Broadway in 1960. It's, you know, I had fun seeing it because I'm a big Agatha Christie fan, but I wouldn't put a penny into it. I wish them luck, but it it seems a weird choice to me. Uh, But I do know one thing. Don't reveal the killer. They tell at the end of the show, don't tell anybody who the killer is. You know what? That's cute because they don't spoil the surprise. I didn't remember five minutes after I left. It's just not that memorable (laughs) show. It's just, it's just you know, a thing, you know, so, and it works in the context of London, but New York, I don't see it. Well, I think uh, right now there's a lot of theaters available, so that might be one of the reasons why they decided to do it. Uh, but but maybe, something, maybe. I, I remember, we're going to talk about something later, Live Nation and Ticketmaster, but, uh, and, and, well, we'll talk about that later. But another deal that we said should never happen is the one we're about to talk about, and it is falling apart. The deal is falling apart. The proposed merger between publishing giants Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster, it was blocked by a judge over antitrust concerns. Shocker, I know. Penguin Random House planned to appeal, but the parent company of Simon & Schuster let the purchase agreement, well, they just let it expire. Since Paramount Global won't extend the agreement, the deal is over and Penguin Random House is out both the costly court fees and the business fees, as well as $200 million payout to Simon & Schuster since the deal fell through. So, hey, merge with us. We'll take the $200 million for not (laughs) merging with you. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, It's a big deal. I don't think it should have happened. Just like we said back in the day, Ticketmaster and Live Nation was bad for the economy and for the consumers. We didn't think this was a good idea. There's two of the biggest publishing companies in the world. They don't need to get even bigger. And in fact, HarperCollins or Hachette both said they might bid for it. But I I think, I forget which one is even bigger, but they're both probably too big to merge with it. It's just like, no, it's, and Simon & Schuster's in great shape. It's up 20% this year. It's doing great, even as some other publishers stumble. Paramount is winning at the box office. Why they think it's not part of their company and doesn't make a good fit, I have no idea. Uh, But I do know that Simon & Schuster is in a little hot water. They have the new Bob Dylan book, where he sort of rambles on about great songs and history. And they offered up 900 copies in the U.S. that they swore were hand-signed by Bob Dylan. 
Not only did they swear it, they included a letter from the publisher saying, lucky you. These are literally signed by Bob Dylan, except they're not. They were signed by Autopen, which is a thing that, you know, you don't want to sign 10,000 books. You let the Autopen do it for you. It mimics your signature, which is a thing, but it's not the same as actually signing it yourself. So... Uh, they did it. Bob Dylan came out with a statement apologizing. Apparently, he's had vertigo. It's really hard for him to sign things. He hasn't really been doing it since 2019. And since the pandemic, he hasn't been able to have his team in place so they could actually do it safely. And he was told this would be no big deal. And now he realizes it is. And you think, okay, 900 copies. It's not that, you know, they're like, well, we'll give a refund to everybody. Well, you know what? That's half a million dollars. That's $540,000 for those 900 copies alone. And now all the prints and things that he sold as an artist since 2019, they're being offered a full refund by a number of galleries selling them. If you send back in the certificate of authenticity, you get a full refund of 3,000, 5,000, 10,000, and so on. So that's a lot of money in play. And the answer is you want to use AutoPen, that's fine. Just don't pretend you actually signed it. You know? Yeah, I mean the way AutoPen works is they take a copy of the signature, right? And and it and it mimics it right down. I mean it's right down to all the little squiggles. I've used them uh, when I worked for Nicolas Cage. He he would yeah. get so much fan mail asking for sure. you know, autographed pictures that he, he had you know headshots and he, you know we'd use the AutoPen. We never said that they were you know signed by him. No, you just uh, send it back and saying you're welcome. There you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah here's and, a picture you know, of Nicolas Cage. Best wishes, Nick Cage. Yeah. But the right. thing is, it's okay. People make prints of artwork. They have a photo and they make a limited edition of 300 prints. They're not claiming it's the single first print. They're just saying this is a limited edition. You had a limited edition of 600, 900 copies of Bob Dylan's book that were signed in some way. Okay. You can't charge $600 for it though. So, you know, just make clear what it is, that it's a limited edition. It's not him sitting down at a table, but it's got this signature. And so it's rarer than a book you just buy in a normal bookstore. You just got to be forthright about what you're doing. I think it was um, Sinead O'Connor, God bless her, was like, oh, for God's sakes, I couldn't sign the 10,000 copies they wanted me to do, and my son's not well, and I'm not well, and, you know, get a grip. I was like, now, those books were sold for $50 with her signature in it, her auto pen signature. That's fine. But again, just tell them what you're doing. Be honest, and there won't be a big to-do. Well, fear not, fans of the Aussie Soap Neighbors. Just days after the final episode aired for good, the beloved show, in classic soap opera fashion, is back from the dead. It was all a dream. Was all a dream. <laughs> I was in the shower. <laughs> yeah. A a Amazon is renewing the show for its streaming service. Did they already strike all the sets? Or is everyone coming back? The details, well, they're still being worked out. But mon Dieu, who is going to rescue the French soap opera, Plus Belle La Vie? Translated into English, the soap known as Life is Sweeter. It aired its last episode on November 18th. Like EastEnders and Neighbors and, you know, other shows like that, Life is Sweeter focused on regular people in the city of Marseille. At its peak, about 20% of the entire population of France was watching while the show tackled storylines about gay people and immigrants by gently introducing these issues into the world of characters they knew and loved. That's like 70 million Americans, by the way, tuning in to a daily fix of General Hospital. Can you imagine <laughs> that? Yes. Uh, but times change, by the way. And life is now a little bittersweet, at least in France. Big deal or big whoop? 
Uh, well, it's both a big whoop, I suppose, unless you're a huge fan of Neighbors or, and or uh, Life is Sweeter. Uh, but during the pandemic, one of the missteps that Life is Sweeter made, according to the New York Times story we linked to, was that they just ignored the crisis entirely. They decided to just have this alternate universe where the pandemic wasn't happening. And that was kind of a mistake because it had always reflected a real life. And plus, it's a rich vein of storyline, so they should have just dealt with it. Um, and that may have hastened its end, but it had been around for a long time. So it's sad to see. And, you know, in the old days, you'd say, oh, PBS will rescue a show. HBO will rescue a show. Now, of course, you're just going to say, okay, uh, Amazon or Netflix will rescue a show. You know, there's always some new savior that you hope when a show is canceled, you can turn to and say, please, please bring it back. So that's Amazon's job from now on. The phrase name, image, and likeness, or as I like to call it, nil. <laughs> it is all the rage in college sports. For the first time, athletes are profiting from the use of their name, image, and likeness without losing their collegiate eligibility. It was the result of a long battle between the NCAA schools and the many businesses looking to profit from, I mean, uh, support, of course, support college athletes. But quarterbacks aren't the only ones who have to fight to control their name, image, and likeness. Look at me. I'm constantly having to go into Target and take all those action figures off the shelf, and they all say the same thing, The Rock. And I'm like, no, that's me. Anyway, uh, in India, movie star Amitabha Bakchan just won an important ruling from the country's highest court. He filed a suit and won a preliminary injunction very favorable to his case. Bakchan's distinctive name, image, personality, and way of delivering dialogue is used without his permission all the time by everyone from mobile apps to lottery ticket sellers to book publishers and t-shirt sellers, and even those snapping up websites with his name. I guess I'm going to have to return that then. Huh. Mm -hmm. I wonder what I'm going to do with that. Anyway, the court ruled strongly that he was likely to win in his suit and clearly suffers damages for it. Maybe I'll just give it to him. But is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, I think it's a big deal. It's important to maintain integrity and not, not let people say, oh, he's, you know, pretend he's endorsing your stuff when they're not. It's very hard to do. And I was especially intrigued by the idea where they said the way he delivers dialogue, like his total personality, it's not just you can't show his photo or say Amitabh loves our, you know, falafels or whatever, you know, falafels is the wrong food, but whatever it is, it's not like you can't do that, which clearly should be wrong, but even personality or like so i guess like the outrageous screaming of sam kinnison or steve martin i don't know why i'm fixating on comics saying well excuse me like could you do that in a commercial maybe not if he's trademarked how he says things that that was a little broad and i found that intriguing but it's good to see the rule of law and what clearly is some violations of fair use uh, not uh, be allowed well, that wraps up Big Deal or Big Whoop for this week and moves us right along into Inside Baseball. Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. And here is how this week's story affects you. You are not going to go see Taylor Swift. Okay, that's just <laughs> it. You ain't doing it. No, you ain't got no ticket. No. Yeah, just unless you're a bot, in which case you are totally invited. You are allowed to come. To see Taylor Swift, just ask Ticketmaster. And as I was saying, I went back. I was like, I know we said that this Good Live Nation Ticketmaster thing. No, episode 41 back in 2010. <laughs> we said, Lordy. this is such a bad idea. It's such a bad idea for consumers. And sure enough, guess what? It took 13 years, 12 years, whatever it is. Guess what? It was a bad idea. 
Well, I'm a little confused by this. So we have three stories. One is about Ticketmaster and its debacle with Taylor Swift's new tour. The other one is about Universal Music Group launching a new streaming service. And a little factoid from the great website Music Business Worldwide, that music superstars ain't what they used to be. But the Taylor Swift debacle has me a little confused. If we did a daily show, which God help you, we once threatened to do. If we did a daily show, we would have probably spent 50 minutes talking about this thing for two or th- every day for three days in a row. It just seemed all anyone could talk about. And I'm still a little confused about what went on. Her tickets went on sale for the North American leg of her tour. She's one of the biggest stars in the world, if not the biggest stars. There's huge pent up demand. They had the usual stuff in place, like you had to be a verified fan for this pre-sale, I'm putting that in quotes, like if you have an American Express card, you get the pre-pre-sale, and then if you're a verified fan to make sure a lot of bunch of nobodies and scalpers don't sign in, then you got that, then you can sign in and try a chance at getting tickets, and then if there's anything left, they'd have a general sale. Well, during the pre-sale for verified fans, Ticketmaster got overwhelmed by the demand. It just was a nightmare. And for days, there was just confusion and outrage and anger and lawmakers are involved. We already know that the Justice Department has, before this happened, been looking into Live Nation and Ticketmaster and about the anti-monopolistic things going on there and whether they should be broken up. We know that it was a debacle. We know people couldn't get in. And we know there's a general problem with bots. But basically, Taylor Swift said, we asked them, man. We said to them, can you handle this? Are you ready for this? And I thought that was weird because I thought, why would you ask them? Where else are you going to go? You have no other option than Ticketmaster, right? Well, what they might have said is, well, are you prepared for this? And, And if not, then maybe we say, okay, East Coast tickets are on sale. Everybody on the East Coast tickets are on sale this week. Next week, we're going to the Midwest. The week after that, we're going to the Rockies. That week after that, we're going to the, and then you you kind of break it up. Frankly, I think it wouldn't have mattered because are bots the problem? Maybe, Ticketmaster says so, but I will say certainly people from all over the country and possibly world were trying to get in. So it's like you only have but one if, But doorway. you can't get in if you aren't a verified fan. So you've already limited it to just a couple million people. So I don't see how bots could be a problem because I thought the whole point of the verified fan thing was a bots. Most of them are not going to be verified fans and you can't, you, I can't share my verified fan thing with my friends and all of us try to log in at the same time to get tickets. You get blocked out. You say, this has already been used to log in. I've had that happen. So, you know, it wouldn't matter if somebody stole a verified fan code because only one bot could use it. So why did, didn't that firewall prevent this site from getting overwhelmed? I, I just well, don't, it, it, I really it, don't understand what happened. Well, even just the login page. If bots were just trying to go to the login page, thinking, but why well, would they? This. Why would they? If they know they can't log in and get tickets, why would they be swarming? Just you know? because they can. But just because you, denial is, why do denial of service attacks exist? Right. Uh, you know, there, there's the a thing the about, day, if, yeah, there's a thing about like if your credit card is not in a certain area code, you can't buy tickets outside that geography. You know, that was one idea or one thing that some people have tried. Like, if you're not in the New York area, you can't buy tickets to Madison Square Garden. But that makes no sense because people fly. I've, I know people from Birmingham who flew to L.A. for Elton John's last show or the last yeah, three the, shows. At, at the Dodger, at Dodger Stadium. Yeah. Yeah. So that doesn't make sense to block that, though. You know, I'm all for trying to block bots. I'm all for scalpers. I hate the fact that you can be buying tickets and see them available for resale a hundredth of a second on Ticketmaster's website. I think that's obscene and wrong unless they're for face value. 
If you paid $500 for a ticket and you can't use it, you want to resell it as a verified ticket on Ticketmaster for the same price that you paid so you don't get screwed, great. Anything or else, less. Or less. Or less. Anything else is complete fraud as far as I'm concerned. It should be against the law. The idea that you can do that is insane to me. If I was an artist, I wouldn't allow it. I'd just say, you're not doing it, ever. And don't tell me they wouldn't back down when Taylor Swift or Bruce Springsteen, not to put it on their shoulders, said, don't do this. Don't tell me if they said, you got to show up at the show with your credit card that you used to buy it or your ID to get in, that that wouldn't work. It does work. So I'm not Bruce blaming Springsteen, scalpers. Bruce uh, Springsteen did that, actually. He, he did it on a massive scale, which didn't work. And he did it on but a small scale, which But other people have done work. it on a big scale, and it's worked. It works. It works at Broadway houses. It works in, 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 in Madison Square Garden. It can work at stadiums. There's no reason why it can't. It takes two seconds. You got your name on the ticket. You got your photo ID. You're in. You know, nobody's going to be making up fake IDs so they can use scalp. To, you know, you make it a little more, just a teeny bit harder. It's not going to work for scalpers. But Ticketmaster just says, oh, we love fans. We hate uh, all those hidden fees, and it's all the bot's fault. I don't buy it. I don't understand what went wrong. Wait, they, they hate the hidden fees that they themselves put in there. Yes, yes. They say we're all for transparency. So, yes, Justice Department investigate away. But whatever went wrong here, I don't buy that it was just bots. I don't know what – there can't be any hidden scandal. They got overwhelmed, but it, it just – it's bizarre to me. I mean, why, why this time? But I, I would say I know what part of the problem is. They sell resale tickets. The problem is they have a market for scalped tickets, legal scalped tickets. And if that wasn't available and you couldn't use them and you couldn't resell them on Ticketmaster two seconds after they went on sale, it wouldn't happen. And another part of the problem is artists charging changing fees for your tickets based on demand because half the time it's bots driving up the demand. So that's the problem. Have a set flat fee. Don't allow scalping where they profit from buying a ticket and then reselling it. And guess what? The demand will dry up for all those people who don't actually want tickets and aren't planning to go to the show. So maybe the problem lies with the artists and Ticketmaster in the first place, but it ain't bots. Well, I think that was just, they had to say something, but now, yeah. you know, here comes Congress going, hey, how come you guys are so big? Yeah. To which I'm like, um, pardon me, but uh, we, we say step, step one, step one is to stop them from sell, reselling tickets to anyone ever on Ticketmaster unless it's for the face value or less. No more profiteering off, off reselling tickets. I bet that would have a big effect. Uh, that's probably very true. Yeah. But now what, what you had like a whole bunch of stories. You well, no, we just have three. Here's, an, here's another one. The this Universal is Music uni Group. Right. It's which, getting crowded in the world of music streaming. Two major labels have launched their own music streaming service. I don't really like it. It, it, it worries me that they're going to splinter up and you got to subscribe to Sony and Universal and Warner Music. I hate that idea. But anyway... Sony has launched Mora Qualitas in Japan. Now, that's a streamer focused on high-resolution music files. And now, Universal Music Group has opened for business a new service called Stage Plus. They love that plus. It's a classical music service, and it draws upon the libraries of both Deutsch Grammophon and Decca. And it's notable for combining both video and audio offerings from artists. Before you picture gray-haired seniors trying to use this new service, just know that classical music 
it's enjoying kind of a resurgence among younger audiences, at least when it comes to streaming. When it's so easy to play something new you've never tried before, when the when the barrier to that is so low, when you don't have to pay $15 to buy a compact disc and you just click on something, your willingness to maybe listen to a piece of classical music you heard in a TV ad, for example, or on a TV show you watch, like Euphoria, it's more likely to happen. So classical music isn't just for old people, though obviously it appeals strongly to really wealthy older people who love this rarefied art form. And combining audio and video is really important. A lot of operas nowadays don't even get released in audio-only formats. They're almost always now just released as like DVDs. I should say that's a very strong trend, at least, that when you get buying operas, you're almost always buying a filmed version of the opera rather than just an audio version. That's very, very common, at least, at least in North America that I've seen. So there's just a lot of crossover between audio and video. The thing is, with Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, searching for classical music is a pain in the neck. Because do you search for the conductor? Do you search for Beethoven? Do you search for the performer? It's really hard. It's really and which, complicated. And which recording is the best? And yeah. Right. Well, that's always a decision. But yeah, there's 10,000 versions of Beethoven's fifth. So this is good. They're serving a niche audience. I hope that anything they do to, to, to create this service, they transfer over the main stuff and keep it. I hope they don't isolate it on Stage Plus. I hope Deutsch Gramophone remains available or is available in an even better way on those major services because I think they can lure those big audiences in and get them to become fans and then maybe upgrade to Stage Plus if they want it. Jazz is the next obvious choice. There are lots of niches in music like bluegrass and jazz especially that make sense just like classical music. But I think we're both worried about the fragmentation, the idea that you can't subscribe to one of those main services and just hear basically everything. But guess what? That you don't get that on Netflix, you don't get it on an HBO, you don't get it at, you know, Criterion, you get what they have the rights to, don't you? Yes, that is true and that's uh, a, a frankly I think a, a problem. Uh, I would love to be able to subscribe to just one service and get everything. I realize why it's I cannot. It's only $500 a month. <laughs> yeah, I realize why I cannot. Uh, but uh, with music, it's, you know, that would be like saying, well, you have to listen to X radio station. Uh, we only play Sony music. Uh, otherwise, you have to go to the <laughs> yeah. other radio station to get universal. just, and yes, I know you're going to say, well, there's, you know, classical radio station. Yes, you're right. And I can tune into those classical radio stations. And you know what? If I wanted to subscribe to a classical radio station and get, you know, 196 bit or 16 bit recordings at, a, you know, 320 kilobit per second, uh, audio quality, then yeah, maybe, maybe that, that high fi high fidelity, maybe that's the way to do it and, and say, look, you know, that particular version is only available straight through us. If you want other, ver the streaming version that's available everywhere. So I think everyone should have as high resolution music files as possible, like more qualitas. And I think everyone should be offering classical music to a robust level, just as they should jazz and world music and bluegrass. I think that's one of the great values of these services. And I still think that for the hardcore fans, you would be able to offer a lot of extras that wouldn't be practical on, say, Amazon or Spotify that you could offer at Stage Plus that would make it worth the while of those hardcore fans. You know, we're not looking for videos of the ring cycle when we go to Spotify. So, you know, I think there's room for both, uh, but I hope that they don't just neglect or isolate or quarantine stuff so that people can't cross over and explore new things. Why don't you tackle the final story? Well, the final story is really about 
musical superstars and how they just aren't as, I guess they're not as successful anymore. Uh, I mean, music superstars are less super these days, at least at Warner Music. The excellent website Music Business Worldwide highlighted the fact in its, in its stat of the week, okay? That, so this is their, I guess it was last week that they did this. 10 years ago, the top five artists at Warner Music generated 15% of the company's entire revenue. In 2022, they're generating just 5%. So stop and think about that. Just 5% from the top artists at Warner Music. They're two thirds the, smaller. That's a big drop. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like 15%, so 10, say picture, uh, Madonna and Prince. You figure the top five acts at Warner Brothers in one year were generating, say, 15% of all their revenue, right? You can say, oh, yeah, I can see that. They're the biggest acts in the world. Nowadays, all of them combined only reach 5%. And that's a huge drop from what they were doing before. Well, the biggest acts in the world, as, we, as we're saying, there aren't, they aren't as big anymore. Or I guess my question is, has the pie just grown? Well, you know, the answer is yes. Revenue for Warner Music has exploded, growing from $1.8 billion in 2012 to $3.8 billion in 2022. But the actual revenue created by its top five artists is lower than it was a decade ago, even before adjusting for inflation. So I guess I can't use my old, my old <laughs> refrain. But, but here's the question. Why is that? And the short answer is streaming. People can listen to acts all over the world. They can listen to any album they want. And if they don't like it, they move on right away to another one. Maybe it's a new release, and maybe it's Kate Bush's Hounds of Love, or maybe it's Nigeria's Burna Boy. The, the Adels of the world, are, they're so big, don't, don't get me wrong, but not as big, and they've got a lot more competition. So yeah, that I mean, is why, Michael, we are not generating the kind of revenue we used to generate <laughs> back in 2009. We have shrunk to the... Oh, wait. Actually, oh, heavens. Zero, so, oh, yeah. No, actually, we're, we're doing fine. We're already pretty short. Anyway, uh, so yes, revenue at Warner Music specifically has more than doubled from $1.8 billion to $3.8 billion. That's more than doubled. But the artists and the money they're generating has not doubled. In fact, it's dropped in real dollar terms without adjusting for inflation. So that's pretty shocking because, you know, uh, maybe they're keeping pace if you adjust for inflation just a little bit, but still, that's pretty, that's, that's pretty amazing. So no, actually, there's no way because it's less dollar value today. And if anything, it should be bigger. And you say, well, adjusting for inflation, it's just the same. So they've really dropped compared to where they were a decade ago. And that's right. We mentioned Nigeria's Burna Boy because they're not just competing with superstars in North America or the English speaking world. You're competing with big stars from Korea and Africa and Latin America. You're getting uh, Puerto Rico's Bad Bunny singing in Spanish, being a worldwide superstar, Nigeria's Burna Boy. You're getting BTS. You're getting all these acts that before would have taken a lot of work to even come to your attention. Now you just click on a button and listen to them. And here's what I think is interesting about this. I think this fact that you have access to so much music I listen to less new music a little bit than I do. I still really listen to a lot of new music, but it's so easy to like work my way through the catalog of Joni Mitchell, or I'm working to listen to Hall & Oates right now because I've never really listened to all the albums of Daryl Hall and John Oates, and I can do it without even blinking an eye. I don't have to go out and buy Private Eyes or Voices or H2O. I can just click on a button, and that's so easy to do, and there's just more and more music available every year. So that huge history of music... You know, now we're looking at 60 years of rock and roll, right? When I was a kid in the 70s and 80s, there was a 30 years, 20 years of rock and roll. You know, there wasn't that much music. Now there's just so much more 
Why wouldn't you listen to all that great stuff? Why wouldn't you? And I think the same is happening with TV and movies and books. I think there's so much more movies available at the click of a button that it's not that people aren't watching new movies as much. It's just there's all that classic stuff. Gilmore Girls is in the top 10 of our streaming charts week after week after week. Show's over a decade old. And all its stars have gone on to bigger new stuff like Supernatural and, uh, and Milo Ventimiglia. He's the star forever, for God's sakes. He's been in three, Heroes and This Is Us, and he's got a new show coming out. And yet people keep watching Gilmore Girls. And I think there's a huge, broad amount of TV that people watch all the time. It's not just about the new stuff. So don't freak out if new shove shows on ABC aren't drawing as big an audience there are shows from 30 years ago that are still finding a new audience. Shows from 20 years ago, shows from 10 years ago. That fragmentation when everything is available is natural. And I think this means catalog, which we always knew. Your catalog, your library is so valuable. You want to make money? Buy the MGM library. You want to make money? Buy publishing for music because that sucker isn't going anywhere and it's going to keep generating revenue for generations to come. You know, I should have uh, gone in and, and seen if... Uh any of Gene Cipriano's recordings were available. Well, I guess technically they are. Oh, of course they are. It's all available. In fact, right before he died, I was listening to September of My Years by Frank Sinatra. I listen to it every year because I'm nothing, if not obvious. So every September, I listen to Frank Sinatra's September of My Years. When I was young, like, oh, yeah, I guess it sucks being old. Now I just cry when I listen to it. (laughs) But woodwind musician Gene Cipriano is dead at the age of 94. He's one of the most recorded woodwind players of all time. Sip to everyone. That's what he was known at. Uh, He was a mainstay of the LA music scene, and he played and recorded with seemingly everyone thanks to his skill and versatility. On Broadway, a new musical version of Some Like It Hot is opening up. In the film, starring Marilyn Monroe and Tony Curtis, Gene Cipriano played the sax solos mined by Tony Curtis. He played in the orchestra for decades at the Academy Awards. We've got a link in our show notes to a clip of Barbara Streisand reacting to his yo when he when she came to the stage to win an Oscar for the song Evergreen. She's like, oh, okay, yo, hi, yes, thank you. <laughs> she, you know, He was an occasional member of the famed Wrecking Crew, a mainstay of the L.A. recording scene, and you can hear Sip on countless classics, from Peter Gunn's soundtrack to the oboe opener for Frank Sinatra's It Was a Very Good Year on that classic album, September of My Years, to Glenn Campbell classics like Wichita Linesman, Lineman, I mean, the Linesman would be a football song, that's quite different, and the 68 L this comeback special and literally 10,000 other things. I mean, just goes on and on and on, but you absolutely have heard Gene Cipriano play. Well, speaking of 10,000 other things, apparently 10,000 other people have uh, died this week because you've got I'm sorry. Documentary filmmaker Howard Johnson died at 78. I'd never heard of him, and that's why I like obituaries. It's a chance to learn about interesting people you didn't know about. He's a Jamaican filmmaker. He did a string of important documentaries for TV, mostly about people of color. Deep Roots Music, for example, captured the reggae scene in 1981. It was disarmingly casual. Why? They had no money. (laughs) And by the way, Deep Roots Music was one of the first things commissioned by Channel 4, which of course the current UK government is about to privatize unnecessarily. But he went to boarding school in Jamaica. He studied under Joe Papp and Uta Hagen as an actor. Sidney Poitier mentored him. Uh, He made lots of other stuff. Almost none of it is available online, uh, which is a shame so i'd love to check more of his work out he's got stuff about paul robeson fats waller uh black hollywood he did a documentary about black hollywood take that elvis mitchell so a lot of cool stuff 
you can see movies by Albert Piun. He died at the age of 69. He's the very definition of a cult filmmaker. He got his first break when the great actor Toshiro Mufune saw one of this Hawaiian director's short films and said, hey, come work on my new movie with Kurosawa. And then he ended up not making that movie, but he made a TV show. And Albert went and followed him and went to do the TV show. And then he went back to Hawaii and made some commercials. Then he went to L.A. to seek fame and fortune, and it worked. His first movie was a fantasy film called The Sword and the Sorcerer. It cost $4 million and grossed $36 million, surprising everyone. That's and like brief- $5 trillion today. Yeah, really. He, for a brief moment, he was on the shortlist to direct the film version of Total Recall, but he never made it to the big time, but he did make it to Canon Films. You remember them? Oh, yes. Oh, God, yes. The, God bless I mean, him. The B-movie maestros. All those, all those action films. Yes, so he churned out a bunch of low-budget flicks on a dime, and some fans claim he's got a notable signature style. He made more than 20 movies, uh, including the first feature film version with Captain America, and he worked with everyone, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Burt Reynolds, Christopher Lambert, Rutger Hauer, Dennis Hopper, all of them on their way down. <laughs> but some people say he's the new Ed Wood. Others say, no, 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 you know, he's, he's got some talent, but I don't know, you'd have to go ask Quentin Tarantino. All I know is you can find his movies online, including The Sword and the Sorcerer. (laughs) And the trailer, by the way, very cleverly worked in the phrase Dungeons and Dragons, just to try to lure in fans of Dungeons and Dragons, even though it had nothing to do with the board game. Although smart move. I mean, yeah. And Emmy-winning writer Gene Parade died at 85. He was an engineer, and he turned to joke writer. He was a GE, and he got big laughs roasting his boss. And people were like, you, you're great. So he got up the courage, and he sent some jokes off to some comics. And Phyllis Diller responded and said, you should do this full time. So he did. He moved to L.A., and the rest is history. He did jokes for laughing. He wrote scripts for all sorts of shows from All in the Family to Three's Company. He also developed a decades-long relationship with Bob Hope, contributing to the star's endless string of TV specials. But his biggest claim to fame is when he joined The Carol Burnett Show midstream, in 1973, and he worked on it from 73 until the show ended in 78. He got three Emmys and a bunch more nominations, creating some of the best stuff they ever did, even writing the spinoff Mama's Family. His, uh, his name appears on more than 120 episodes of the show. So if you like Carol Burnett's show, you like Gene Perret. Oh, and also, he wrote a number of books, including several that The Hollywood Reporter call influential, including comedy writing step-by-step, which is still in print. Now, have you ever seen a movie by the French director Jean-Marie Straub? I'm sure I have. I think you'd remember because they're punishingly autistic. Autistic? Artistic. <laughs> he and his wife, Daniel Wiet, created some of the boldest and least commercial movies of the French New Wave. Their friend Jean-Luc Godard, he's like Spielberg compared to them. They had no mercy on audiences. If audiences ever embraced their movies, they would have been distraught. Happily for them, that never happened. Their debut feature was critically acclaimed. It is the Chronicle of Anna Magdalena Bach. It almost became a hit, but no, don't worry, it didn't happen. And even the artist of critics were sometimes beaten down by their films, sometimes based on Marxist texts, performed by non-actors in a flat style. It was all for the best. Straub said, if we hadn't learned how to make films, I would have planted bombs. But don't be misled, their body of work is hugely admired by certain cineasts, with Richard Brody of The New Yorker calling them one of the least known great filmmakers. And they are a team. Even though he, Jean-Marie Straub, was always credited as director, he and his wife, Danielle Wiet, were a team in every sense of the word. Now, I've never heard of Alice Davis, the Disney Parks costumer, have you? 
No, I had had not until I read her. Uh, you know, I, I saw this story as well. I was like, oh, that's interesting. I had no idea. Yeah, she died at 93. Uncle Walt himself recruited her to do the costumes for a ride called It's a Small World After All. Not for Never Disneyland. Not, yeah, not for Disneyland, but for the New York World's Fair in 1964. She did hundreds of outfits for people from all over the world. And she worked with Disney artist Mary Blair to do it. They researched and designed more than 150 different costumes. It was a huge hit. And hey, it's not her fault that the song is stuck in your head. Per the New York Times, the French can-can dancers, they kept tearing their panties. So Davis is like, ah. Oh. So at the last minute, she created full-length pantaloons for them to wear. And when Walt saw them, he's like, why, why did you do that? And she said, you said you wanted a family show. <laughs> and so that attraction you know, went right to Disneyland. And then she went right to work on Pirates of the Caribbean. So as she said, she went from sweet little kids to dirty old men. So that, that's, that's pretty good. As a young woman, she wanted to study animation. Here's a little history for you women. She was told, nope, that's for men only. Costuming is for you, little girl. So she did it. She had no choice, really, but she did manage to take an animation drawing class taught by one of Disney's animators, Mark Davis, one of the so-called nine old men. They liked each other. They got married, and they each have their own window tribute on Main Street in Disneyland, one of the company's highest honors. And we don't talk a lot about managers, but two big ones died. Manager Bill Troish died at 80, and manager Phyllis Carlisle also died at the age of 80. He represented everybody, um, Christopher Walken, Diane Keaton, Richard Jenkins, but especially Sissy Spacek. She said, the day I met Bill, everything changed. I dragged my two guitars into his office, and we talked for a long time. And then I sang and played a few songs for him. Before I knew it, we were having dinner together and meeting some of his other clients and going to the theater. We just clicked from the moment we met. He believed in me from the start. And Phyllis Carey has a similar story from one of her great fans. She did everybody. John Malkovich, Ted Danson, Steve Gutenberg. Phyllis Carlisle, you mean? Phyllis Carlisle? Yes. What did oh I yeah, say? God, she did everyone. Yeah, right. she was. A Willem Dafoe said in tribute to her, she was my first representative and found me by looking me up in the phone book after seeing me in the 1981 film The Loveless. She was tough and independent. She loved her work and she did it with chutzpah. And Irene Cara died, the Oscar-winning and Grammy-winning, no, Oscar-winning singer and songwriter. She did it for Flashdance and Fame. She died at 63. She shot to fame, appropriately enough, in the movie Fame, directed by Alan Parker. Her outsized ambition perfectly matched the character she played, won a group of kids at a high school for the performing arts in New York City. She was cast as a dancer. Then they heard her sing and said, um, hmm, <laughs> maybe we should change that. Life imitated art when the movie became a smash hit and the title song performed by Carr became a smash hit as well. That and the ballad Out Here on My Own, which is an even better song, were both nominated for Oscars and she became the first artist in history to perform two songs on the broadcast that they had originated. Lightning struck again when she co-wrote and sang Flashdance, What a Feeling. Like fame, that number one smash won an Oscar making Cara an Academy Award and Grammy winner. She only never needed quite, a Tony and an Emmy. Yeah, she never quite matched it, but, you know, she made good choices. They just didn't quite click, and God bless her. Uh, you know, you two great songs to your credit. And, you know, I thought, did fame deserve to win? Did Flashdance deserve? I looked it up, and, you know, I think they're both very good numbers. They work really well in their films, uh, and, you know, full power to them. Uh Fame, however, beat out Willie Nelson's On the Road Again and Dolly Parton's 9 to 5. I don't know. I think I would have voted for 9 to 5 at the time, which I don't 
almost seemed like a novelty number at the time, but that is an enduring song. So, but fame is a worthy. It's not one of those Oscar winners where you say, oh, Flashdance, on the other hand, beat out two songs from Yentl, which explains why Irene Cara never got invited to Barbara Streisand's home. <laughs> also, they didn't know each other. Although they were both from, uh, weren't they both? Well, one was so from Brooklyn, the other was from the Bronx, right? Uh, close enough. Yeah. Come on. There it's just go. a D-, D train ride away. So no show next week. No, no show, show next, next week. week. Uh, but you know what? You should definitely what? subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Microsoft Marketplace, or Stitcher, Spotify. Anywhere they give podcasts away for free is where you can definitely subscribe to us so you don't miss an episode. And, you you know, in some of those How can you miss them? They're so big. How can you miss them? They're, 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 like they're supersized. Not- 900 pounds each episode. Um, but if you can, please do rate and review us in any one of those podcast aggregators that allows you to do so. It helps us out when you do. Links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, as well as, by the way, uh, those ways to subscribe to us, they can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's also where you'll find ways to reach out to us. You can email us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Or call us and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. Or we're on Twitter, at showbizsandbox is our handle. Or on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is our, is our uh, I guess, the page our handle? where you can like us. Yeah. yeah. Um, again, all that information is on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, whoismgmt.com. Michael Giltz has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? Go watch glitter.com. Sparkle, sparkle. Glitter is the Mariah Carey. Sparkle is the Irene. Sparkle is the Irene Cara one, right? Yeah, I was like, wow, he's really, okay, all right. Um, Well, you know what? If you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until two weeks from now, play nice. (laughs) 